get you go to school. And here's your name. What do you think of what's going on right now, mate? These evil little invisible parasites. Satan-worshipping Freemason moron. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not run by factions. Get the fuck out of camera! There are much more powerful international forces in play. Is this pink guy? Is this what pink guy is? I don't fucking know what's happening. Please get outside and look at the moon quickly. It's been crazy, guys, but guess what? It's how it is, mate. Mate, because I want to do more. But I ain't spending any time on it. Welcome to the Condition Release Program, a podcast that delves into the netherworld of cults, crims, and con artists. I'm Jack the Insider, otherwise known as Peter Hoisted for tax purposes. And I'm Joel Hill, and today we're taking a break from the cooked, the incoherent, and the downright insane to look at real criminals. Uh, allegedly, 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 yeah. allegedly. Yes. Yes. yes, we couldn't help ourselves, and we've jumped aboard the true crime gravy train. Brutal mm. murders, senseless deaths, and serial killers are where the money is. I love gravy. It's delicious, and it's very expensive apparently we want to talk today about the limits of the true crime obsession and how it might just be screwing with the criminal justice system itself yeah who'd have thought uh, murder would be an ugly business <laughs> and not just a means for a few clowns with an internet connection and a couple of microphones to make a bit of coin that's right it's scary but true people love to read hear and watch anything to do with the absolute worst of human nature and we're not just talking about rv yemeni here we're not talking we're not talking about rv yemeni at all no Joel. no but that is what comes to mind when you think about <laughs> is, the yeah, most depraved yeah, minds yeah. in the world what a cunt and we'll get right onto that shortly not rv yemeni that is but murders but and, but we just want to remind listeners that all this reporting and analysis does take time and resources, so we have set up a Patreon in order to keep this podcast going and growing. That's what we have, and growing is you, share our shit, but for as little as five murder dollars a month, you can help us out. Simply go to patreon.com backslash condition release program, make contribution. You can give us more than five dollars. If you'd like. Yes, and you'll have access to all manner of freebies, including premium episodes, Zoom calls, merchandise, and sundry content, including a confession from me on why I murdered Joel, but not a jury in the land will convict me. Joel, are you there? Still here, Jack. Better luck next time. Gonna uh, come with the king. Damn that gun buyback scheme. It's restraining my freedom. My freedom to murder Joel. Yes, well, at least freely and easily. That's enough of my murder, Jack. Stop fetishizing because that's what true crime podcast listeners do. Yes, they do. We have to get on with things with these murders in our true crime rabbit hole. On March 3, after taping the show, Alex Murdoch was found guilty of murdering his wife, Margaret, and his son, Paul. The jury took just 90 minutes to reach a unanimous verdict and Alex Murdoch, as a result, has been sentenced to life in prison. Prosecutors in South Carolina did not seek the death penalty, therefore life in prison. When handing down the verdict, Judge Clifton Newman did not mince his words, saying to Murdoch, you can convince yourself about it, but obviously you have the inability to convince anyone else. Oof. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure, to which Murdoch replied, every night, which feels eerily like an admission of guilt, but that's uh, up in the air. Despite this, they intend to appeal a verdict, which is excellent news for all the shitty podcasts that exist solely to follow this trial. Now on to the main course. I, I still haven't worked it out yet. And if you haven't worked it out, keep asking the question and keep looking for the answers. Because it's irrelevant. Well, there are two sensational murder trials underway in the United States. One has begun 
The other has been delayed almost interminably for Ugh. those who've been watching it closely. They just can't. They want. They want a result. Mm. Yeah, that's it. To, to you know, say a terrible turn of phrase. Pull the trigger, for Christ's sake. The first is the trial of Alex Murdoch over the shootings of shooting deaths of his wife Margaret or Mags and his son Paul. Poor Paul. Mm. Murdoch was in the witness box a week ago giving evidence under oath in what seems a desperate attempt to try and scotch some of the lies he told to police and investigators in questioning after the murders. The second we've mentioned in the conditional release program is a quadruple murder by frenzied stabbing of four students at Idaho State University in Moscow, Idaho in the rental home they lived in. That trial has barely begun with the accused Brian Koberger not yet offering a plea, although not long after... Uh, he was arrested. His lawyer indicated that Koberger was looking forward to being exonerated. Yeah. Uh, both trials and the grisly business surrounding them have been the subject of extensive media reporting, huge social media activity, mm-hmm. documentary treatments. Yeah. There are at least three on the Murdoch murders and too many podcasts to count. Uh, there is a strong whiff of amateur slews doing their own research and so-called experts being summoned to offer their opinions more often than not, in offering reasons why the defendants are guilty. Mm -hmm. And these activities challenge the principle of the presumption of innocence. And as part of your research this week, Charles, uh, you took a deep, deep look at the true crime podcast business. What did you find? Oh, look, it's an absolute freak show. As you said, there are too many podcasts to name. I tried to get a sort of few of them or at least snippets as far as I could tolerate. Generally speaking, I've always got my true crime from you, but the other place, and you, your analysis is completely different to anywhere else I've ever seen, but the other place is listening to the more traditional case file podcast, and that's, yeah, that's usually really in the car with Liz because I, it's not my thing, and I don't like it much. I've got a shitload more respect for that podcast now. The dude sounds like a robot. That shits me. They were on the corner, blah, 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 blah. Mm, yeah. A lot of the details... She was there at 7.45 p.m. Yeah, the time zone was Greenwich Mean Time. Shut the yeah. fuck up, bro. They seem really unnecessary. Look, it's just not my kind of podcast. I find myself kind of bored. And, yeah, I do want to know what happens at the end. You know, like, oh, do they get convicted? Do they fucking whatever? But it's I just, just served. Mm. I could happily not start the episode at all and not find out what happens. But Liz likes it, and I like her to be happy. And therefore, I like it, especially on long car rides. <laughs> she knows that I'm not a huge fan. But at the same time, look, you know, happy car, happy life. The fucking hell, man. It is so much better than the absolute circus sideshow bullshit you see coming from the States. Have some fucking self-respect. Everyone is a fucking expert. Like you said, they're all just inserting themselves into this to yeah. be these experts attached to this case. They have nothing to do with get on TV or fucking radio or a podcast. One American psychologist is trying to make a name for herself by claiming that he's an incel, and she's clearly a fucking clout chaser. Oh, that, that's, uh, that's Coburger, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is Coburger, yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, she just, it's like she just wants attention. It's such a bizarre clout chasing exercise because I get chasing clout and I understand that it comes in all sorts of forms, but, like, this is a group of people who are looking for this fleeting sense of fame and maybe make some bucks being a more desired consultant or or shrink. This is off the back of a fucking horrific incident that mm. involved several innocent people being viciously slaughtered. But one could say this is quintessentially American, and it is. It is fucking quintessentially American, but it's also fucking gross. And listening to it over the last week has been gross, just disgusting. 
So some of the podcasts I listen to were like this sort of gossip session and they're talking excitedly about people close to victims, the killer himself, you know, just getting off on it. Just like so like you can hear the tone that they're loving this sick fucking narrative going on. But then you have the dudes who are basically putting on a pro wrestling style show, like with this like bombastic music, ridiculous sound effect, that sort of like, you know, American announcer voices where it's like, hey, welcome back to the show. Now we're going to talk about teenagers being murdered. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about death. Fuck yeah. Now the murderer who's a cunt. Like, you know, it's just pathetic. You should not celebrate this kind of murder with fanfare. And yet there's a whole fucking industry doing really well doing mm-hmm. exactly that. And like to be fair, there were several podcasts that did straight reporting on the trial details for the Murdoch case. That's fair enough. I didn't get as much of that weird bloodlust shit. It was far less of a clout-chasing freak show on that trial, which is I think is good. But a huge part of my humanity, or at least my faith in it, died after listening to podcasts on Coburger. It was fucked. Who is? It must be said. Just to remind everybody, Millie the Accused. and Allegedly, um, allegedly, allegedly. Yeah, exactly. that's right. So the best way to describe this is the what's called the Idaho University, the State University Murders. That's, what's, that's what it's been called. Yeah. Um, look, I know many of our listeners have asked us or me, to do a bit of true crime stuff. Yes, you. We have done and we will do, but one thing I will never do is serial killers. It's ugly and so exploitative and voyeuristic. I, I co-authored a book many, mm-hmm. many years ago called Shallow Graves and I recall wondering what the hell I was doing when I was writing it. My fellow author and I merely trawled through newspaper clippings, trial documents, etc. We didn't interview family members, police or prosecutors. It was an entirely sanitary exercise and I vowed then never to do it again. It was cheap and nasty, but it sold, you know, confirming that there is a huge appetite for this kind of material. My co-author, Paul B. Kidd, recently deceased, made something of a career out of it, Mm. publishing a dozen or so books. And only one did he meet the perpetrator, the knick-knack man, so-called for his skill with a knife, often castrating his victims down and outers in Sydney, uh, most of whom were killed in public lavatories. There was some insight there because Paul interviewed the serial killer in his jail cell decades after he'd been sentenced and there was a show of remorse, however sincere, it was hard to tell. But nowhere in in any of Paul's other books did we get anything of any substance other than a sort of chronological run of events, murders, trial and punishment. You know, there's a sort of formulaic thing, you know. And true crime is a fascination. Mm -hmm. There are two things about it you may not know. The majority of true crime consumers, podcasts and books are women. Although, to be fair, women are the biggest purchasers and readers of books full stop. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) The other thing that booksellers will tell you is that true crime books are the books most likely to be stolen from the shelves. Ooh, that is funny. Mark Brandon Chopper Reads books, uh, his, his Chopper books. Uh, it was always it must have been a really a, a real ordeal for bookshop owners just to figure out where to put them in the fiction section or yeah, or in the true yeah, crime section. So full but of shit. That was the that, that that series was the most <laughs> most stolen from shops. That's very funny. Well, look, yeah. it speaks to a certain audience, but it is deeply ironic that many people who read true crime books commit crimes to get their fix. You know, <laughs> shoplifting to get <laughs> no. their fill. That's very funny. Like, I really, I didn't know that until this, and that's fucking hilarious. I would say that it speaks strongly to the idea there is an adrenaline junkie side to this entire genre. 
And as I said before, from what I've seen from the podcast, at least, because that's my sort of wheelhouse, I don't really sort of watch things as much as listen. This is being heavily pandered to by American production who are trying to get you on the edge of your seat the entire time with all these annoying sound effects and that, or with this gossipy style thing of, oh, you need to know what happens next, big cliffhangers, all that sort of shit. But it leads to these thoughts of these sort of, you know, dirty crimes and dirty secrets. You know, these sort of salacious stories have already always sold well. It's, you know, it's always been one of those things where you want to find out all the gruesome details of something that's a bit naughty. But it's a little bit different to put up some clickbait about some, say, like a rich guy having a kid with one of his cleaning staff than a fucking gruesome murder involving real people and real families left behind. Mm. But the other side is the gender imbalance in consumption, and I find that absolutely fascinating. And it can lead to some pretty questionable psychology. I heard a publisher describe uh, as women readers of true crime asking themselves, what if the fruit of my loins was a serial killer? And I mean, Mm. that may not be a a woman's only thing, but I mean, like, you know, a mother's born with their child is quite a special one. And the idea of that flipping on a dime is fucking dubious, bit dubious, but... It sells, you know. Publishers know it sells. Well, publishers want an excuse to fucking sell it. I would say it's a fair question. I think associating with women is a bit fucking naff. But what would you do if you found out your angel that you brought up for the last 20 years turned out to be a fucking murderous asshole? I mean, yeah. So that's the sort of thing that people can exploit in this sort of, you know, it's not necessarily feartainment like you've always said, but it's more just, you know, sort of, dirty, bloody entertainment. But Mm. that's the thing. True crime is hugely popular, whether it be because of this weird fetish for bloodshed or these sort of like, you know, big questions of what would I do if I was in this situation, trying to find out how other people do it. And at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, many of the world's biggest podcasts run on this theme. So like it or lump it, you know? Yeah, some true crime reporting can lead to very good outcomes. I yeah. mean, my colleague colleague at The Australian, Hedley Thomas, yeah. a skilled investigative journalist and Gold Walkley winner twice, I believe, maybe oh. more, uh, gave us a teacher's pet, which yeah. ultimately led to the con- conviction for the murder of Lynn Dawson by her then-husband, Chris, in 1982. The 74-year-old former rugby league footballer was convicted in August last year of the murder of his wife and sentenced to 24 years in prison with a minimum of Minimum of 18. Going to die in the clink, champ. Yeah, but that minimum doesn't kick in because there are new laws in place in New South Wales which prohibit early release. Uh, And in his case, if if the body of his wife remains missing. Wow. So he'll he'll do the full 24. If uh, If he makes it. If he makes it that far. Unlikely. And for all Headley's great work, the podcast... Um, Teacher's Pet, which has been downloaded more than 28 million times. Fucking hell. Did create difficulties for prosecutors, or more correctly perhaps, an avenue for Dawson's defence to try and get him off. In the end, the judge-only trial uh, came to the right verdict, on my reading of it anyway, and there was an abundance of circumstantial evidence to put the bastard away. Yeah, and this is a problem for all podcasters examining what we might call sort of running mysteries, you know, things that are on foot. In the hands of a skilled investigative journalist like Headley with the support of the Australian and its legal advisors, yes, absolutely, a pathway through the ethical and legal minefield could be found and done very effectively and very well and, you know, award-winningly well. But others, amateur sleuths, who spend their time doing their own research in their fucking basements, have little or no understanding of the concepts like, say, the presumption of innocence, and they just keep on doing this for a few extra downloads or a few extra clicks on their blogs. And, of course... 
let's say they do know about the presumption of innocence and they do understand it, they will ignore the fuck out of it just for the yeah. sake of this sort of thrilling narrative Absolutely to try and, you know, they will. capture mm. some of this clout and be involved. If we listen to them or, of course, read them, we would almost certainly walk away thinking, all right, I've heard enough. He, she, them, guilty. And most yep. of the podcasts I listened to, on Coburger at least, said he was straight up guilty. None of that boring alleged shit that we do in our podcasts. No. No, just, just he's guilty, guilty and here's why. I know? do sometimes forget to say allegedly, but you're very good at saying, no, allegedly. Like, yes, allegedly. Oh, I'm sorry. It's very true. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. very true. No, it's we good. even have to worry about We should worry about it in, in terms of uh, big big overseas matters where perhaps the reach of the law and the courts won't get to us, but we still should say it. He's an accused man. That's yes. it. That's it. Exactly. And he's subject to trial. Um, look, the amateur boffins also can get things horribly wrong, and this can lead to horror stories of their of their own, where people are falsely accused and have their lives ruined. Uh, one example that comes to mind is the disappearance of the three year old boy William Tyrrell uh, from his grandmother's home uh, on the New South Wales mid north coast in September 2014. The boy's body has never been found, but there's been a flurry of reporting, sometimes driven by information leaked to the media by police which led to false accusations and lives ruined. One of the suspects who has been completely cleared went through a media and police-driven hell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Late last year, Bill Spedding, a refrigerator mechanic, won a malicious prosecution case against the state of New South Wales and was awarded $1.48 million after he successfully argued that he was charged with historical sex offences to put pressure on him amid the investigation into William Tyrrell's disappearance. That is so fucked up and corrupt I can't even begin mm. to discuss yeah. that. And like $1.48 million, I doubt the money, which isn't, it's a it's a two-bedroom in Surrey Hills at this point. It's not an amount no, that will make up it, for the destruction of his reputation from, and life. from proper compensation for the hell that this guy went through, and like, and including what, who, being jailed for long periods of time. Where are the scalps? Uh, <laughs> and, you know? and charged with historical sex offences that had no basis. Fucked up. I mean, when it comes down to sex offences, it's a really heinous crime to be accused of. And even when your name is cleared, people will still look at you funny in the street. It's one of those ones, man. It this just- guy was just hounded by the media. When, when he was out of jail, um, uh, able to get bail, um, he was just hounded. You know, just and you could just see this guy's life crumbling before your eyes. So fucked up. His his marriage ended. He was basically isolated from family and friends. It was just an awful, awful business. Yeah. And, and it is, you know, that's just one really big red flag around this sort of true crime reporting, particularly, uh, particularly um, uh, where you know matters are unresolved. Um, you know, we, we could we could probably go back even further pre-internet and look at Lindy Chamberlain. I mean, she was yeah, basically determined was to be guilty just yeah. because she didn't respond the right way, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's public, awful. Didn't respond you know, to the right way to, be, to, the, to the loss of her child. You've got to be a good victim. This is something my sister talks about a lot. You've got to be a good victim. Is So when it comes to the spedding thing, just out of curiosity, was that the whole thing that stopped Jubilant from being a cop? No. No, was it separate? wasn't. No, okay. it wasn't. There were other conflicts around other um, uh, alleged uh, perpetrators of the disappearance okay. of William Tyrrell. Um, but of was course, he involved in, in this? Gary Jubilant, for right or wrong, some people are big fans, others are not. 
Uh, but Gary Jubelin, for right or wrong, is now doing true crime podcasts. He is, which I thought was going to be the funny punchline to that because basically if he was involved in that, it is hilarious that he's just turned out to be Mr. Eyecatch Killers who sells at auditoriums telling about how he's such a fucking hard man. Well, I'll tell you what, if he was involved in that, I don't know if he was, but no time. No time yeah. for a person like that. No um, time for a corrupt Motherfucker, uh, who does that stuff? That sort of no, thing. No, 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 no. I, 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 don't, I don't think you can say that about Jubilee. It's, it's very, very murky, and, and okay, indeed, cool. he, he did some very good work uh, in regard to the, the basically the serial killer involved in in uh, the uh, the murders of three uh, three uh, uh, indigenous uh, uh, young children or young okay, cool. young teens. Uh, and in fact, one was an absolute child. Yeah. Uh, did some very good work there and was much loved by that particular community up in, uh, yeah. up in the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Cool. I just want to um, clear it up because that's where I went in my head. Yeah, look, it, it, <laughs> what happened with the um, the William Tyrrell case, it probably can't be investigated at this stage because um, it, it should be the subject of, of a judicial inquiry. But Really? Oh, absolutely, because there, were, there was information being leaked to the media, and yeah, okay. and, 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 and you know, in, in, in one case, in, relating to spending, and yeah. um, uh, and, and and as I said, the guy's life was just absolutely ruined. Yeah, so it it, it should be the subject of a judicial investigation. Yeah. The police won't want that. No, obviously, and, good at and it probably it. can't happen yeah. until someone at least is charged Gets over the disappearance up. of William Tyrrell. But yeah, uh, when the police uh, went there on mass uh, last year and and went went searched the property and and uh, and thereabouts uh, in great detail, they came away with essentially with nothing. Yeah, I think we did a chill episode for the patrons, didn't we? Or is it in the main? We feed? might have I'm done. Sure. Yes, I think we did. I, I'm not, I think I, it was it's, in the patrons. It's quite upsetting the way the, the way that whole thing has has run because look, these things are very difficult to investigate because. Yeah. Because they are, because initially it was thought that the boy was seized, that the boys, the boy was taken, abducted, yeah, and and so police will have a number of suspects in their in their range. Um, there's the other way of looking, at, and so they will go and basically kick down a lot of doors uh, yeah. around those people. But the other way of looking at this is most of these offences, and I'm not suggesting in any way this relates to the Tyrrells, but most of these offences are familial. Yeah, yeah. It becomes very, very difficult. Of course, Gary Jubilin is absolutely convinced that William Tyrrell's adoptive uh, parents are not involved um, and, and other police believe uh, that they are. And really, at this stage, we don't have any evidence um, to suggest one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, not enough, that's for sure. Anyway, Joel, like the hypocrites we are, yes. we are going to delve into uh, these two intriguing trials. That's the Murdochs and the uh, Idaho State University murders. Yeah, We necessarily need to discuss established facts and speculate a bit about some of the evidence, but mainly focus on how crazy this sort of wall-to-wall media attention can become and how people get falsely accused based on little more than internet gossip. Yes, exactly, gossip. So let's start with what has been called, as you say, quite rightly, the Idaho State University murders, because that's what they are until things develop. Mm -hmm. Just after 4 a.m. on November 13th, 2022, an intruder entered a six-bedroom, three-story rented house in Moscow where six student tenants lay sleeping. Now, there's a bit of conjecture about whether they're asleep or not, blah, 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 but 
as it goes, the official line says sleeping. This is more of the stuff these fucking podcasts are inserting into it. Anyway, I won't deviate too much from the facts, but God, it's annoying because you look at this after listening to podcasts like, I've heard nine different accounts of this fact. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't want to get too caught up in that sort of bullshit because my brain's spinning. I don't need yours to. The intruder stabbed four of the students to death. There's the shitty part. Hearing cries and a male voice reply, it's okay, I'm going to help you. One of the two survivors opened her bedroom door and saw a masked man whom she later described only as having bushy eyebrows. Panicked, she closed her bedroom door and shortly afterwards, the intruder then calmly left the house through a sliding door at the rear of the property. That young woman was one of the two survivors, and they were distraught, obviously. One fainted, Fuck the yeah. young man fainted, and a yeah. 911 call was made, but the caller was in deep shock. That was that actually turned out to be one of the residents in a nearby fraternity who, um, because the two survivors just basically were, were so shocked they couldn't speak. Yeah. And, and even that person from a nearby fraternity was in deep shock and fell into incoherence. The yeah. dispatch caller sent police to the property requesting they check on an unconscious person. So the report just doesn't make any sense at that initial stage. Yeah. But what police found were the bodies of Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan, both 21, and Zana Canodal, 20, and her boyfriend, uh, Ethan Chapin, also 20, uh, all viciously murdered, stabbed to death. They were all students at Idaho State. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, like, you know, this is this is something to do with university. They all knew each other. They're all housemates. It's a college blah. town. It's, 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 it, it's a college town. Moscow, Idaho is a college town. And not far yeah. away, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is another college town in Washington State. So North, North Idaho has, has a border and really 15 minutes drive away is yeah. Washington State University. The backgrounds, and I've read a good deal about um, the, the four victims, uh, Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan, uh, they, were, they grew up together as, you know, knew each other in primary school. They were, they were both from North Idaho, lived not far away. The family homes were not far away from Moscow, yeah. uh, Idaho. Um, they grew up together. They went uh, they went to high school together. They did everything together. They were, they were as, as thick as Steve's. Um, yeah. Both um, seemed to be absolutely lovely people, as were Zana Canodal uh, and her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, and there are uh, reports from people who uh, got to know Zana Canodal and, and Ethan Chapman, that they basically were so in love that, that, that they basically restored people's faith in love. Um, and um, Zana Canodal came from a difficult, it's a difficult background, but she didn't seem to let it annoy her at, at all. Um, she was a sort of driven, motivated person. And, uh, and as I said, you know, I'd fallen deeply in love with Ethan Chapman and, and he, in turn, with her. Well, you had Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Morgan as these sort of Kids had known each other, just 21. They'd just known each other all their lives. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's it. Later experienced investigators described the scene. This is FBI people, right? This is FBI crime scene investigators. They described the scene inside the house as the worst they had seen, and they have seen horrors like you wouldn't believe. The date is worth remembering, November 13, because it would take another six weeks or more before an arrest was made. And we'll get to the circumstances of the arrest later. But this shocking crime, and it was an appalling crime, would need time to be investigated. These, these yes. things take time. They do take time, yes. And a grisly crime scene ex would need to be examined for every little detail, movements of the four victims corroborated, CCTV footage, whatever was available, watched in detail, and investigated, investigative processes followed. 
these things yeah. take time. You know, yeah, there, there's, there's, a, a there's a show on called First 48, which, which, which talks about how critical it is for that first 48 hours of a, of a murder investigation. Yeah. And I watched this series till, you know, I watched so many episodes. I think they're up to about 12 or 13 series of this where they oh, actually, wow. you know, they, they follow around the, the actual investigators. Yeah. And uh, I think the last series was, was based in um, uh, New Orleans. Uh, well, no, um, Baton Rouge in Louisiana. Okay. And it was invariably drug-related murders, black-on-black murders. Um, and, and yes, those murders are, are, are relatively easily solved within um, uh, within within that four, first 48-hour period or shortly thereafter. Something like this, uh, what appears to be uh, a, a sort of random crime, therefore, you know, there is no no exact motive immediately understood. Um, these things take a great deal of time and police resources, forensic, scientific resources to uh, And for to good solve. reason, for really good reason. It's actually a sign of good police work mm. and I've got a lot of respect for that. So that's, that's the scene. Like, I mean, for more than six weeks, Moscow Police Chief James Fry kept his cards close to his chest. He wasn't giving shit away because yeah. that's the process. <laughs> Media appearances were brief and perfunctory and added little to the mystery. So it looked like, for good reason, parents and friends of the victims, they sort of spoke to the media expressing their frustration at the sort of this apparent lack of progress in the investigation, like the cops weren't doing anything. Yeah, they were getting very cross. A number of people were getting very cross and, 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 and anxious about it. And, and I guess that's understandable. Uh, and, but at the same time, you've got to understand that, that the police chief is not going to go to the media on a daily basis and start drip feeding them on the on on the uh, on the extent no, of the investigation. Absolutely not. So, in that kind of void, amateur online investigators filled it with information on friends and family members routinely became suspects in vapid online discourse. The father of Madison Mogan had a drug conviction going back many, many years, and on internet whispers, he became a suspect. Police would have counted him out alibi-wise weeks before, um, but this didn't stop fingers being pointed his way. Yeah, like amateur internet sleuths doing their own research, then point to the mother of Zaina Canodal, an Arizona woman thousands of miles from the crime scene apparently is now implicated because, well, people are fucking bored. And it is probably true that the mother, Cara Denise Canodal, had problems, a lot of substance abuse problems, which is rife across the United States of America, yeah, and she's, had been a negligent parent. She was a, she was a meth addict, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and she'd had battles with it most of her life. Yeah, generally speaking, this is not a disputed fact. But those failures began to manifest themselves to the point where... Cara Denise Canodal became a suspect. And, I mean, that's really unfair. This is really unfair as well because what the angle they took is that she was cast as a mother, jealous of the daughter's love between her and Ethan Chapin. I mean, who comes up with this shit? Yeah, yeah, they're just scrambling. And, look, clearly she could not have committed the murders Idaho and Arizona are a long way apart. Yes, there's many potatoes. And she would have had fairly strong alibi evidence there. So this too was sort of swept away. This sort of geographic, um, you know, absolute absolute logic um, was swept away in the suggestion that she had merely hired the murderers. I mean, that's such like a, a cooker style. Kill thing. my it's daughter like, and oh, then go impossible? on and kill another three people. It's just yeah, exactly bizarre. yeah. 
And of course, they would have done it so gruesomely because, yeah, hired murderers love to uh, leave big, uh, big, fantastic crime scenes. I mean, just, I just, once again, I go back to the people who made this up. It's very similar to cookers who are just like, oh, this is, this would be cool. Let's just lie about it. And then when someone's like, hold on, that sounds like a lie, you go, yeah, but what if they did this? You can see, yeah, you can see them sitting around going, maybe if this happened, then that could happen, you know, and just, yeah. and just run through these sort of bizarre hypotheticals. Just anyway. Uh, In the absence of any notable suspect, media and social media alike went wild. Three weeks after the murders, Fry announced that police were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra, but this drew very little response from media, social or otherwise. Oh, wow, you know, because something's actually happening. On December 30, though, a police tactical response group blasted through the doors of a home in Indian Mountain Lake in northeast Pennsylvania and arrested a 28-year-old Brian Koberger. Koberger was a PhD student in criminology and a teacher's assistant at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, which is just 15 kilometers across the state border from Moscow. He waived extradition proceedings and was flown the 4,000-kilometer journey back to Idaho, where he was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and felony burglary. Mmm, little kicker there. Koberger remains in custody in Latar County Jail. And then the podcast and the media coverage changed gears to the poacher-turned-gamekeeper angle of a criminologist, or at least a PhD in criminology, PhD student in criminology, arranging the perfect murder. But of course, it wasn't the perfect murder, and no such no. thing really exists. Even no. the most skilled criminals, serial killers, hitmen, etc., leave traces of themselves at the scene, whether it's DNA or popping up on CCTV, whatever. There are literally a hundred things that can identify a killer at a murder scene, and that's because they were at the scene, you see. But then, in, then it transpired that there was physical evidence. And prosecutors' affidavits revealed that Koberger's DNA had been found at the scene on a knife sheath bearing a USMC, Marine Corps logo, which had been found in Madison Mogan's bed by her right side. The USMC logo is a bit of a red herring in that it is widely available. You can buy them in Walmarts. <coughs> it doesn't mean that he had a military background is what I'm saying. Anyway, the murder weapon, the knife itself, has not been found as far as we know. Mobile phone triangulation showed Koberger, who resided 15 kilometres away on campus in Pullman, Washington, had been in the neighbourhood at least a dozen times prior to the murders, always late in the evening or early in the morning. The prosecutor's affidavit states that at the time of the murders, Koberger's phone was switched off. And then the media, podcasts, etc., all started wondering how a trained criminologist could have made so many mistakes. Oh. One Fox News report features and featured an interview from with a former NYPD detective who claimed this guy thinks he's smarter than everyone else. That's why he left the DNA on the sheaf. Apparently, I mean, what? Why? What? Yeah. You know, you're yeah. talking about if Koberger is found guilty, and this is purely hypothetical, the DNA left at the scene will be seen as one of his mistakes. All well, crooks make them, I guarantee you. And I'm he, not suggesting that was the case here, but this idea that he would knowingly flout <laughs> uh, uh, DNA evidence of his appearance at the murder scene is bizarre. But, okay, so a couple of things here. Firstly, there is a possibility, and this is something I was listening to in the gossipy, awful, bloody podcast I was listening to, is there's a possibility he wanted to get caught, and that makes a certain degree in the of sense in the sort of post-mortem of this, no pun intended, in that he's having women throw themselves at him. He had a fan club on Reddit, which was recently removed, That's weird. saying how fucking great he is. There is this weird 
sort of, you know, perverse sector of society that loves serial killers, gets off on them, idolizes them, sends them letters. Apparently the house is now like a weird sort of dark tourism fucking attraction, yeah, which is just be. bullshit. Mm. And secondly, I can't help but to hear the New York police department detective on Fox News, who's clearly just there to chase clout, saying, this guy, he feels like a smart than everyone else. What a shalomi. He drives me crazy. I can't believe he thinks he's smarter than us. And when you were saying it, I didn't hear that, and it made me sad. Because he's clearly going to talk like this because he's from New York. He didn't actually. I think you're doing your mafia guy rather than your It's very disappointing if he did it. You've been watching perhaps a little too much of The Sopranos. I've got a belly full of hot dogs. I'm so tired. (laughs) Anyway, the point is about DNA that it is very, very persuasive on juries. Um, Yes. The other point about DNA, and I make no, um, I'm not speculating about this particular case or not. Allegedly, but, allegedly, yes. But DNA can be faked. DNA, DNA can be faked. And, and, I, and like I've seen cases where word. it's actually occurred, where let's really? say a cigarette butts have been obtained um, and, then, and then placed at the crime scene. Uh, That's very conspiratorial. So because, because DNA is such powerful and persuasive evidence, um, you know, we, we, we're often reminded about these one in three trillion uh, likelihood of, uh, of, of of it being someone else or, you know, that, yeah, that this is a yeah. 99.9999999997% chance that yeah. it is. How does this lizard kill these DNA. people? Yeah. So these things are extremely persuasive to juries. Um, mm. But, again, and I make no comment about this particular case, but it is true also that DNA can be faked. Um, that is by taking someone's DNA from a cigarette butt or from a glass that they've that they've drunk from and, and placing it at the crime scene, something of that order. So, yeah. um, yes, so we've already had this sort of really big noise, Joel. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But, I mean, one of the things is that the process is punishment and this got way worse because early in the new year, the presiding magistrate placed a gag order on the players in the trial process, which is the prosecutors, the law enforcement involved, the defence, the parents of the victims. They're restrained from speaking to the media about the case. And to give you an idea of why this is significant, the only people who had real knowledge of the crime were now excluded from the discussion. So what's going to happen now? <laughs> now, that gag order was probably sensibly done without properly understanding the sort of mayhem yeah, that's exactly. going on in the background. Exactly. Um, because uh, that presiding magistrate Tone was death. determined determined that uh, um, uh, that Coburger would receive a free trial. And so the, the only gag order that, that uh, uh, it was a she could place uh, yep. <coughs> was on the on the players those directly involved in the trial, which did include the parents of the victims. Must also be said that uh, I believe um, <coughs> I think it's the parents of uh, Madison Mogan have have sought to have that gag order lifted in their case. Um, <coughs> so anyway, in the vacuum. True crime boffins, commentators, and a raft of so-called experts have appeared on media speculating on the suspect's motives, the accused's motives, much of it of the gamekeeper 
term poacher type and how his academic background provided a working knowledge of crime scene investigations and police methods in evidence gathering. He yeah. didn't have that much, to be, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was more to come. In mid-December, Coburger drove cross-country with his father from Pullman to the family home in Indian Mountain Lake, PA. His father had flown to Pullman days before. This coincides with him being uh, dismissed from uh, Washington State University as a teaching assistant. Uh, There are a number of concerns raised by students about his treatment, particularly in regard to... particularly how he um, related to his uh, female students and and how he assessed them a little bit harder and he'd been the subject of review by the faculty for some time. Anyway, Koberger was under surveillance while he drove to Pennsylvania and was filmed placing material in bins on a property neighbouring his parents' home on two occasions. Investigators have examined the contents of those bins, what he actually discarded there, but a further gag order means what has been found and and what relevance it has to the case is known only to the players, the prosecutors and defence. In the absence of these critical details and so much more, the media has been obliged to look at Coburg's personal history in an attempt to glean some insight. He is known to have suffered or may still be suffering from visual snow syndrome, VSS, a disorder that causes sufferers to see static before their eyes. Some describe it as seeing the world through a badly tuned television. The condition is sometimes linked to tinnitus. My God, imagine having your ears ringing and you've got you've got this sort of snow before your eyes, this static before your eyes. That's enough to drive you nuts. Um, Anyway, the condition is, uh, is, as I say, sometimes linked to tinnitus. There is no cure and the syndrome may end abruptly or continue for life. Treatments include antipsychotic and anti-anxiety medications. Koberger left a string of bleak messages in a chat room designed to provide support for VSS sufferers more than a dozen years ago when he was 16, 17, all of which has since been removed. I did actually pull out one from an archival search which showed Koberger or someone bearing his image as an icon with his date of birth that reads, I have had this for over two years. He's 17 at this time. At this time, just a reminder, I've had this for over two years and I've had it in every single way. I've had it bad in every single way. Not one night have I slept normal since and I feel like I'm trapped here. I have been able to block it out for a while now, but I realise what is wrong and it suddenly becomes unbelievable. I am desensitised in every way now. People say these are supposed to be the years I enjoy and cherish. Well, I can't say I will cherish these days. That's particularly bleak. And again, in the hands of the wrong people, the wild speculators, that this guy is starting now to be cast as this kind of, you know, sort of emotionless automaton, you know. Uh, Koberger was also a heroin user in his teens, but had since been clean. He was a vegan, another talking point for the, for, for the podcasters. Journalists have yeah. questioned women Koberger has dated, and while one woman recalled some odd behaviour, there was no history of violence. You might want to talk about the incel stuff, Joel, but he, he certainly wasn't an incel. Some people are absolutely obsessed, as you said at the front of the program, that some people are absolutely obsessed that this guy's an incel. He did date this uh, young young student uh, and she did recall some odd behaviour. He, he would sort of reach out and back in her dormitory dormitory room and um, and uh, and he'd tickle her and say, stop tickling me. I'd say, I'm not, I'm not, and then tickle her again. It's kind of harmless, I, I suppose. But just weird. It's Macaulay strange. Culkin and the good it's son kind of It's definitely strange behaviour. And then she sort of yeah. started thinking, well, I better 
sort of, I better sort of wander off. I need some space from this guy. And, and he followed her to the dormitory toilets and shower rooms. And um, and then she sort of asked him to leave, and he did. You know, basically sort of yelling out from behind a toilet cubicle, "Can you please go?" And he and he did. Yeah. So that's okay. a bit weird. You'd have to say overall, like- that's a bit weird. He looks again, you know, books and covers and all that sort of stuff, but he does look like a sort. He's got this sort of piercing, piercing vision, a pierce, yeah. piercing face, and and quite. Quite strange. So you can actually—he's got pretty dead eyes. Yeah, he's, he, he does look a bit alarming. Anyway. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't look like an incel. Incels uh, occupy a certain space. He looks a lot more like a failed normie, which is one of the things I talk about with the sort of like the Tate incel phenomenon thing. Basically, if you've had girlfriends, if you're not a virgin, you can't really be an incel by definition. And if the the, the reports I've seen online, a lot of people are saying that he hasn't had girlfriends, and I think that's where this has come up. But it looks like there's conflicting information on that where he has yeah. actually had women in his life. And if that is the yeah. case, I'm sorry, mate, you're not an incel. You you can be a failed normie all you like and be a real angry one. You can hate women for days, but you don't get to be an incel unless you are a virgin who has either never kissed a woman, never slept with a woman, or only partaked in the services of sex workers. This is absolute fucking canon for incels. You cannot walk outside this circle. And if you've had sex... You better have a good excuse as to why that happened and how it was a true accident of ridiculous proportions or you paid for it. Otherwise, incels will just say, get the fuck out, normie. No one's interested in your bullshit. After after his trial and whatever the outcome, I'm, I'm happy to discuss, you know, some of the some of the issues around his personality, including what, you know, reports would indicate difficulties in relating yeah. to women. Um, <clears throat> but at this stage, no. Look. Despite his drug use, Koberger had no police record and his only known interactions with the police prior to the student murders was a call from several years ago where he was left stranded uh, behind a locked gate. His vehicle was anyway, his Oof. car was at a national park and on that, that occasion sucks. he was polite and apologised to the police for wasting their time when they came and, yeah. came and opened up the gate. Bailed him out. Yeah. Uh, subsequent examination of cold case murders in and around areas where Koberger, Koberger has lived and study shows nothing of interest. A prosecutor's okay. office in Pennsylvania, where Koberger's study as an undergraduate student, was one that conducted a comprehensive review and found nothing with respect to Koberger has come about in our investigations. That's a direct quote of cold cases or unsolved cases to this point, but we always continue to investigate and pursue leads. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, so during his period as an undergraduate student at DeSales University in Pennsylvania, Koberger conducted a research assignment asking criminals to complete a survey. So the survey, which remains online and was promoted again by Koberger in a Reddit post in November, which is a month you may remember from, you know, murders. Yeah, earlier. Takes- yes, earlier than that, but yes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's around that time. Like, it's pretty fucking close to the bone. It takes 15, 20 minutes to complete, so it's fairly comprehensive, and it includes questions about how offenders have, say, responded emotionally to illegally entering a premises, uh, committing crimes within said premises, and how they felt at the scene and after leaving it, which... Yeah, look, I actually did the questionnaire. Um, oh, really? And, Fuck, that's uh, chilling. I just put, put in gobbledygook answers just to, just to go through as quickly you as I could. You and the rest of the world, the, I'm sure. Get to the questions, that, yeah. The methodology will be flawed There now. were some very strange questions. It, it could be seen as just mere academic data collection, but in the face of yeah. events on November 13, the questions can take, well, obviously have taken on a bizarre alternative meeting. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's another thing, you know, 
the media constantly reminded people that Moscow, Idaho was a peaceful place and so forth, you know, and policing in Moscow generally involved attending to noise complaints from student parties and the odd bit of property crime. Yeah, you know, basic this stuff. sort of idyllic sort of town. To reinforce yeah. this, media reports have made much of the fact that the last murder in Moscow occurred seven years ago. Mm, okay. What is rarely mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, is that the event was a triple murder spree shooting. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> Where John Lee, then 29, shot his landlord to death, entered an Arby's restaurant and killed the manager in a hail of gunfire before driving to his adoptive parents' home and shooting his adoptive mother dead. Oh, nice. Uh, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that uh, Lee ultimately was uh, was offered a plea um, and uh, was sentenced to jail for the rest of his life. He had yeah. a, a number of disorders. He, he was uh, down the very, very far end of uh, the autism spectrum. Yeah, okay. And uh, was suffering from schizophrenia at, at the time. Um, but yeah. all that was... Um, avoided the death penalty in his case yep. uh, and he was sentenced to life without possibility of parole uh, very shortly after the murders occurred. Look, I'll be the first to acknowledge that I became intrigued by the Idaho University murders case. I did Coburger's online service, survey, as I said before, and it, it really was strange. How did you feel once you'd broken into a house? How did yeah. you feel once you came across the people therein? Um, all that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, look, just getting back to that Lee thing, um, Moscow, Idaho has not been spared its share of America's epidemic of gun violence. Um, Lee, as I said, suffered significant, significant psychiatric disorders. But in the case of the four murdered students, prosecutors will attempt to show means, opportunity and a forensic pathway from the murder scene back to Coburger. But the question of a motive remains a mystery. Yeah, okay. Prosecutors have yet to reveal any evidence that Coburger knew his victims. And this is hotly debated too in the podcasts and social media ponderings. Yeah. Although one of the you know one of the victim's parents has claimed that there was some contact, but of course we can't talk about that anymore because they've got a gag order on them. That's right. In recent days, one media outlet claimed uh, Coburger had been subject to multiple complaints from students, as we said before, that he had behavioural problems and showed a, and this is a, this is a quote from, from the complainants, that he showed a sexist, sexist attitude towards women mm. on November 2nd. His supervising professor met with him to discuss an improvement plan, a bit of the old okay. dreaded counselling there. The matter yeah. came to a head a month later when Coburger met with faculty leaders. He was formally dismissed on December 19, more than a month after the murders. Yeah, okay. So that's not really a motive. Um, I would say that's not really a motive, although the, the you know, going under this kind of improvement plan and sort of assessment might have been a trigger. You could you could speculate yeah, could on that, but, shame but he was formally like dismissed, that. you know, a month after the murders, and by that stage was driving with his father. Yeah. Uh, across uh, the US Midwest. So Koberger has yet to enter a plea, although before the gag order, Defence Council did say he was looking forward to being exonerated or that he looked forward to being exonerated. Uh, he's 28 years old, which is old enough to want to continue living, but it's very hard to say what his motives were in the crime, whether he wanted to be caught or not and whether the Defence Council even have enough money to go through this whole arduous trial. Yeah, but look, Idaho, we has, just don't know. Idaho does have the death penalty, and there's been some reporting uh, that Coburger would be subject to uh, death by firing squad. So yeah, that's another wow, little, okay. little tasty piece of information. You see? Sounds worth avoiding, and I imagine he would have known that um, if he did commit this, this, these murders and he did make any kind of plan around it. But at the end of the day... This is all conjecture, which we've largely condemned throughout this entire podcast. 
the truth is there is a preliminary hearing. It's due to begin on June 26th. So the ball's going to start rolling, apparently. And the gag order remains in place until at least yeah. then. Subject, subject to uh, subject to to appeals through the courts, as I say. Yes, I parents, believe there have been appeals. One of yes. the parents is doing that, and we'll see how yeah. they see how that goes. Look, every day brings new snippets of information. In this case, some relevant, some merely curious, and often macabre. Absolutely. It also brings into question the role of media and social media amid the chatter. The presumption of innocence has been roughly ignored, and while yeah. those close to the victims are restrained from comment. The media has been left to ruminate out loud. Oh, yes. And last month, for example, media digging revealed the alleged offender had sought an internship with a neighbouring police department claiming he wanted to assist rural enforcement agencies. This is a quote from mm-hmm. his uh, from his um, application uh, written in his own hand. Rural, he wanted to assist, and I quote, rural law <coughs> enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyse technological data in public safety operations. And again, there was more of the gamekeeper term poacher stuff. But what's really interesting about that, if you think about it, is that he is <coughs> actually acknowledging there, uh, and this is just this just depends on how you report these things, what, what emphasis you give it, but what he's actually saying is, I have no experience in crime scene investigation. Yeah. That's yeah, one way that's to look it. at it. The other one was, oh, you know, he's trying to get in and, you know. Learn about the scene or something like that, blah, blah, blah. I mean, look, it's all sort of conjecture. The whole criminology thing seems like such a red herring to me. I, I, I think so. He's, he's been studying it, but... it for some time. Of course, he's a PhD student, so he's been through and received his yeah. master's uh, in yeah. criminology. Um, and, and he was clearly a, a, a battling with personality and substance abuse problems uh, in his uh, in his late teens. So. Yeah. yeah. Another way of looking at that is that he has recovered very, very well from a heroin addiction. Yeah, yeah, which is not an easy thing to come out of, you know, so that's completely reasonable. Yeah, look, I've, I've found it very strange hearing a lot of these sort of things in the podcast, microanalyzing him as a person, yeah. trying to figure out these <laughs> motives and things like that by just making shit up. It's, it's ridiculous. And this really does lead to the idea that, okay, so the trial in this instance is – saying set to begin for preliminary hearings on June 26. I hadn't really heard of this outside of the, you know, like you talking about it basically and a few links you'd sent me. But how do you have a fair trial when you have already got podcasts with 100 episodes about this fucking thing uh, before the goddamn trials even and analyzing you? Analyzing his personality and his and probable shit up. guilt. Yeah. Oh, it's fucked. So, yeah, it's been a real clown show and I just find it very difficult to say there will be a trial. No, fair trial. There will be a fair trial. Yeah, Yeah. look, the trial won't begin for months, which is is frustrating for everyone really. Um, uh, Especially the family. But what it tells us, you know, this sort of true crime industry that was running around this particular event is that we're incapable of patience and we can't wait for due process. We've got to interrupt that. That's exactly it. Yeah, we have no attention span. And now to the Murdoch murders. It is a one-family crime spree, a rich, powerful family playing on the good old boy network in South Carolina, which sounds fucked up. I've learned a lot of these things today talking to you. So last week, Alex Murdoch stepped into the witness box. He swore on the Bible and began to answer questions from his own counsel in his trial for the murder of his wife, Margaret, and his son, Paul. So you've got this bounty of documentaries, at least three. 
they're presently streaming on Australian television screens through all your favourite streaming services. I'm sure you can find them. All of them have documented this sort of multi-generational power which is wielded by the Murdochs in South Carolina's 14th District. They fucking own the place. Decisions on who to prosecute and who would evade the law has laid in their hands as a family for 86-odd years. There were cosy relationships with county sheriffs and district police departments. Judges. But now one of their own's in the dock. Yeah, there are podcasts, so many podcasts on the Murdoch murders. And yeah. Once the dust settles, this one is set to go all the way to Hollywood. One podcast called The Murdoch Murders claims to have started the ball rolling on Alex Murdoch's descent into consequence. It actually started the investigation, not into the Murdoch murders, but into his whole malfeasance. And it's just not true. The law is catching up with Murdoch's financial crimes well before the murders took place. Yeah. Now, if, those mur- if we want to sort of compartmentalise the murder of his, uh, of his wife and son, youngest son, um, and and we look at his financial crimes, much of which he's confessed to. Um, yeah. uh, he was he was right under the pump with those anyway. Yeah, you know? yeah, that that looked like a pretty pretty bad time for him. So the melter of violence and crime occurred in South Carolina's Low Country, which is a rough triangular sort of shape at the south of the state, which consists of five counties, nudging the border to Georgia. The port of Charleston, the true cradle of the American Civil War, is little than more than an hour's drive away. So that's the sort of general geographics of the place. More than 40% of all enslaved Africans passed through Charleston's harbour between the 17th and 19th centuries, just to give you some historical perspective on the area, which these people have enjoyed luxuries from for some time. Many of these said Africans were forced into labour on these subtropical low countries' rice fields. Yes, not cotton but rice in the low country. Yeah, black Americans made up the majority of the population of South Carolina until the Great Migration. It's a period in the early to mid-20th century which saw blacks leave, black Americans leave the South uh, 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 en masse as they moved north to the northeast, midwest and the south, west of the US to escape Jim Crow laws that continue to treat them as non-citizens. Good idea. Um, yes, it was. Um, of course, South Carolina had impositions that uh, you, uh, whites and blacks could not dine together. Jesus. Um, uh, all sorts of impositions um, uh, of the sort of Rosa Parks type uh, in terms of uh, transport. It's called Jim Crow because these, yeah. the, it was a, a sort of, not a direct response because it took some decades, but um, <clears throat> it was a, a direct response from the South to uh, the emancipation laws <clears throat> yeah, from the, okay. the, the, that drove out of the civil, civil War. So, look, South Carolina, like much of the South, is a state where white privilege continues to flourish, and in the low country, the Murdoch family were more privileged than most. There were three generations of the Murdochs, one after the other, were the district solicitors, which is a peculiar term to South Carolina, basically means district attorneys. They were the okay, district like attorneys the between 1920 and 2006. It's an elected position. In those yeah, nine decades, the Murdochs ran unopposed in 86 years. They ran unopposed in all but five elections for the state Fuck. for the position of solicitor of the 14th Circuit known as the 42nd, the low country. In the early years of the 21st century, South Carolina became a litigator's paradise. Legislative changes allowed claimants who are South Carolina residents to file a suit in any 
county in which an out-of-state company owns property and conducts business regardless of where injury or loss took place. So one, you didn't have to sue uh, the, the state where uh, a corporation or an insurer where they were headquartered. And two, it didn't matter where the injury took place, but if you're a resident of South Carolina, ah, uh, say, and it just nice. meant the floodgates open on a, on a hell of a lot of litigation, personal injury, negligence sort of claims. And it became boom time for Alex Murdoch, who had joined the family firm, didn't become a district prosecutor, district attorney. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he, he became a litigator who had joined the family firm Parker Law Group in 1995. And sooner or later, Alex developed a business model, I shouldn't laugh, that saw him rip off no, his own clients. And when the scam fun. was a simple one, given his status and the litigation factory that Hampton County, where he was from, uh, where his, and his firm was based, <coughs> insurers and corporations preferred to settle. You know, yeah. They just knew they were up against it. So he would negotiate the settlements personally. So let's say he goes, I demand a million dollars on behalf of my client. Yeah, and he'd 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 take the million, they'd settle, uh, and um, and he'd give the client he'd give the claimant the client um, hundred thousand dollars and pocket the rest. Yeah, yeah, piece of shit. What a piece of shit. Terrible so, piece of shit. We'll go into some of them in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, like all in all, Alex Murdoch has now been charged with eighty eight financial felonies, including twenty seven counts of embezzlement. So other charges include money laundering and forgery. But the indictments reveal a dozen or more victims and accrued losses of more than $14 million. That's Australian. Australian, yeah. Yeah, it's mm. 11 million US, whatever. One civil claim against him indicates his victims numbered between something like maybe 30 or 50 and a total overall fraud of about 30 million bucks. So his assets and bank accounts have been frozen, but much of the money remains missing because he probably put into fucking Bitcoin or some yeah, shit. There's a little bit. We'll, look, we'll talk a little bit about the missing money in a little while. But Murdoch's victims were, for the most part, poor claimants who'd suffered serious injuries. One, a deaf black American man, was seriously injured in a car accident in 2009 and required life support. So he's sent off to a hospice. Murdoch arranged a settlement with a small amount, only going to his family to pay for the man's ongoing medical expenses. The man died two years later after his life su support was turned off, suspiciously, according to some people. Mm. Murdoch was there again, filing a wrongful death suit against the man's carers, and another larger settlement was obtained, of which an estimated $1.1 million, we're all talking Australian dollars, I've converted them, of yep. which an estimated $1.1 million remains missing. Mm -hmm. Deaf black American man, seriously injured, just gets taken to the cleaners. That's fucked up. The scams began to unravel in 2018 when a housekeeper at Murdoch's home in Moselle, South Carolina, suffered a serious head injury and died shortly afterwards. A lot of mystery about that event too. The okay. cause of death was described initially as natural. Oh, no autopsy or coronial inquest took place. Murdoch received a $5.8 million dollar payment on the housekeeper's insurance policy and on this occasion simply took the lot and split it with his accomplices. Oh, good. He had accomplices in banking and, and another lawyer who's okay, also great. been charged. <clears throat> the housekeeper's family received nothing and filed suit against Murdoch some time later. They found, wait, what do you mean? There's been an insurance settlement? Yeah, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, well, yeah. well, we haven't got any money. Have you got any money? <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, you know, there's the, the, the Netflix doco, which I have seen. They go, did you get anything? Well, we, and they figured out no one had got anything. And oh that God. legal action exposed Murdoch's scam and brought him to the attention of the state's legal board, his own law firm, and the police. Yeah. 
So in July 2022, Alex was disbarred as a lawyer in South Carolina by order of the state Supreme Court, and he didn't even appear in court to defend the action. He just copped it sweet. Yeah, things are just collapsing for him now. It wasn't going well. So the housekeeper's death is now regarded as suspicious, and South Carolina Law Enforcement Division sought and obtained an order to exhume her body. So the investigation continues on that one. It is by no means the only suspicious death that occurred in Murdoch's orbit. And the death of a 19-year-old gay student, Stephen Smith, was found battered in the middle of a row in 2015, was cast off as a hit and run, but an investigation had been reopened, and Alex and his surviving son, Buster, are persons of interest in said investigation. And there is also the negligent death of Mallory Beach, a 19-year-old woman who died of injuries sustained when a boat driven by Alex Murdoch's youngest son, Paul, crashed the vessel into a bridge. Now, Paul Murdoch, who was then 19 and under state law prohibited from purchasing or consuming alcohol, because he's got to be 21, had a blood alcohol content of 0.286. I mean, yeah, he that's was almost a big death. He was a big drinker, the boy. and um, hectic. Uh, and was known to just be a horrible drunk as well. Uh, yeah, he seemed like a bit of a prick. I have seen the, the Netflix documentary, which is streaming at the moment, uh, and uh, and that was definitely the focus. The focus was that Mallory Beach um, negligent death. You would I would definitely call it a negligent death. Okay. Paul Murdoch was driving the boat. Yep. And uh, and was full as we, as we know as full as a full as a Catholic school at the time. Uh, I believe Low Country, which is the one I haven't watched. I think that's on um, that's on Foxtel Binge. Uh, does the same sort of okay. thing, but <clears throat> yep. as if that was the sort of. But these documentaries, it's really interesting to see the timing of them. They really did look at the Mallory Beach incident, and they interviewed the parents of you know the of, of the deceased and and all the friends that were around her. They were sort of tight knit bunch uh, of people, and 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 how they responded uh, emotionally to to the, the death of uh, their their close friend. Yeah. That, was the sort of focus of this now the Murdoch or Alex Murdoch is using his influence to get his son off. Yeah, okay. And and yeah. that's the way they've they've tilted into this and they've done their doco on that basis and then all of a sudden this other stuff has actually occurred with Alex Murdoch allegedly shooting his son, Paul, and his wife, Mar- uh, Margaret, Yes. Dead. So that that was all done really while these documentaries documentaries were being produced. You can actually see yeah. them sort of being a bit tacked on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see how that works. But just like, just to show you shit. the power of Alex Murdoch, his son wasn't arrested at the scene, despite and the only reason they they found out about his blood alcohol content was because he was injured and he was taken to hospital, and he was so difficult to restrain and be treated um, that that uh, that the hospital decided they take a take a blood sample anyway. Yeah, it would, it would take three months before he's charged on on one count of boating under the influence, causing death, and two counts of causing significant bodily injury. Paul pleaded not guilty to the charges and was released on a seventy five thousand dollar bond. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, what what we can say about that is that really it was just an extraordinary piece of interference from the Murdoch family and Alex in particular, and and, and also. Arguably, his his uh, Paul Murdoch's grandfather and Paul Murdoch's uncle all intervened, turned up at the hospital. The boat itself was removed from the crime scene, just put on the back of a trailer and taken away back to the Murdoch house. Just where it couldn't be properly examined. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about it, mate. It's fine. And all of this was being examined by these docos when 
on the night of June 7, 2021, Murdoch allegedly murdered his 52-year-old wife, Margaret, who he described in testimony as Mags. Yeah, and, yeah. And, laying it on. Uh, and his son, Paul, who he described in testimony last week as Paul Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul was aged 22 on the night of, uh, of the murders. Paul was hit with a shotgun blast to the arm and chest, which left uh, him wounded. He stumbled out towards the kennels at the family home, big family home with, you know, hunting dogs. And was shot again in the head, dying instantly. His basically his head was blown off, or his brain had been blown out of his skull. Jesus. His mother was shot with multiple rounds of an AR-15 style rifle, some ten metres away. Neither weapon has been found, and there is further evidence that they were removed from the Murdoch home. Yeah. And again, it was just. Just you know, they were allowed to do whatever they pleased in the wake of these murders, and and um, uh, <coughs> and these weapons were were ultimately well. We do see Buster um, driving away in a uh, uh, in a truck with uh, weapons on board. After Arrested Development, I can't take anyone named Buster seriously, and there's nothing that can be done about that. So, on September eighth of that year. Alex Murdoch called 911, reporting that he had been shot in the head while changing a tyre on the roadside. Mm. Unusual. (laughs) Initial police reports were blurry and uh, claimed that he'd suffered no injury, while he suffered actually a fractured skull and brain bleeding. But a week later, he sang like a bird and confessed to contriving the attempt on his life, having paid Curtis Smith to shoot and kill him so his surviving son could claim the insurance money. Buster. Mm. All for Buster, the cartographer. Sorry, rest of development. Both he and Smith were charged over the failed suicide for hire. They were in a little bit of trouble. But you can see why this sort of story of just like utter human misery and despair is catnip for these true crime kids. Seeing this rich family fall apart with this guy who's continually doing dumb shit, which is dramatic and exciting. And weird, you know, yeah, it makes no we'll, sense. We'll go into the relationship with with Curtis Smith in a little while, but just to ramp up the felony counts, both Murdoch and Smith were also charged with drug related offences, including conspiring to supply methamphetamine. The relationship with Smith was an unusual one. Curtis Smith was known as a fairly significant drug dealer in the area. Huh. Um, it is known that Alex Murdoch, uh, who um, uh, had an oxycodone addiction, uh, okay. or claims to have and probably did because there were pills found in the house and uh, all this sort of stuff later. And he did actually go into um, go into um, a, a Florida. Um, like a uh, rehab or something? Rehab, or? yeah, uh, a, a little bit later. And it would seem that Smith was his supplier of, of oxycodone. Yeah, so they okay. had, they, but, they, but it, the, the relationship is a bit darker than that. And when Murdoch's been asked about the money, where the money is, all this, you know, a, a, an alleged $20 million pinched, where is it? No visible signs of additional wealth. And he said, oh, I just got hooked on, you know, I got hooked, hooked on oxycodone. And you go, that's a shitload of oxycodone. That's a lot man. of oxy, man. That's a lot of oxy, man. And yeah. there's got to be, there's got to be, uh, there's got to be another answer to it. You think um, so. Buster and his uncle, uh, Alex Murdoch's brother was seen at the casino, um, and that okay. might have been a bit of an attempt to launder some money. Uh, uh, look, the running total as of this day 
is that Murdoch is facing 106 criminal charges, including fraud, drug trafficking, and murder, of course. And last week, he took the unusual step of giving evidence under oath in the murder for the trial of his wife and son. It's rare because no matter a suspect's guilt or innocence, giving evidence necessarily means cross-examination, and mm-hmm. that can end very badly for the accused. Oh, yes. You know, yes. If, you, if you're not properly prepped and you don't, you know, and, and, and you get caught in a, in a, in a, uh, in a cross-examination, you know, it can look really, really bad. Yeah. Uh, and he was warned, uh, warned of this by the judge before he took, before he took uh, the oath. Yeah, yeah. That's Under questioning from his own counsel, we talked about this. He admitted he acknowledged he'd lied to police about his whereabouts on the night of the murder. Murdoch's voice could be heard on a video taken on his son Paul's uh, phone minutes before Paul was shot dead. Oof. About 15 minutes, I would think. Interesting. Uh, the, 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 the video is time-stamped at, uh, I think, quarter to nine, and oh. he was dead certainly within 20 minutes. Jeez, okay. Uh, and you can hear the old man's voice. Yeah, and he had told police investigators he was not at the scene and did not did not attend the scene until much later. Yeah, well, I mean, he fessed up to it. He said under oath, "I lied." I lied, claiming that his judgment was clouded. Oh, here it goes by an addiction to oxycodone. But then he said, "Once I lied, I continued to lie." Mm. Okay, not a great look. He denied that he killed his wife and son, bursting into tears on occasion, or referring to them by their family nicknames of Mags and Poor Paw. Mm. Hmm. To be honest, poor, poor sound like a bit of a fuckwit. Creighton Waters, which is a classic, fantastic American name. But South like, Carolina. Creighton Waters. He's appearing for the state of South Carolina. I mean, that's great. You can't write that shit. He asked Murdoch about lying to his clients and, quote, every single one of these, you had to sit down and look somebody in the eye and convince them that you were on their side when you were not, correct? And... Murdoch replied that he lied and stole from his clients by saying, quote, I misled them. I did wrong. Yes, you did. You Mm. did, Al. You did. One way or another, justice will be served. Beyond the murder trial, Murdoch faces so many felony counts, it is almost impossible to keep count. I mean, take the murders out of this, and he's looking at life sentences anyway. Yeah, What will effectively be life sentences. He's been naughty. And while his descent into consequence has already begun, the trial is his biggest challenge. Just how far can he fall? That's the that's the thing. I mean, uh, there's really it, it, it's really a matter of degree. I mean, the, the, there's complete collapse of this good old boy family, very powerful family. Money's gone. Uh, it's just deceit and disgrace. Uh, Across the whole family. The trial continues in front of a jury. Yes. And that's kind of odd in itself because there are so many documentaries here that show him as a real villain, which he may well have been, probably was. Yeah. Yeah. And the prosecutor, as we just saw, as Joel just quoted, is making much of Murdoch's financial crimes and a a number of witnesses. Uh, have given evidence under oath, you know, about how Murdoch basically stole from his clients uh, and setting him up as a liar, someone who looks people in the eyes and lies to them, just like he was looking the jurors in the eye and lying to them. That's yeah. what the prosecutor's trying to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was a liar, you know. Yeah. And, but did he blow his son's head off with a shotgun? I don't know. Big step. Yeah. Anyway, did he fire multiple rounds into his wife, killing her instantly? don't know. Mm. Yeah. You know what? I don't know. No. And podcasters, media, social or otherwise don't either. No. 
and that's why we have a criminal justice system. And yes. in our case, and in the case of the US, it is a system where principles like the presumption of innocence and reasonable doubt prevail. Yes, except in podcasts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Murdoch is having his day in court and Coburger will too, soon enough. Soon enough, yeah. I understand why we are intrigued by crimes such as these, but we can see the problems that arise in jumping ahead of police investigations, overstepping on criminal proceedings that in this country at least would amount to contempt of court proceedings. This this thing, we just can't wait. We have yeah. become too impatient, just like yeah. the good old days in the Wild West where they'd tell the accused he'd get a fair trial and then they'd hang him in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't have trials by podcast, or maybe we do. Maybe we are starting that, going down that path, we, but we we shouldn't because it's dumb and leads to very poor outcomes. And on the other hand, if we did, you know, have a trial by conditional release program, I would find you guilty, Joel. No fucking mercy for you. It's the craft beers, the crime of craft beer. That's I'm it. sure of it. Not a not a not a jury in the land. No, anyway, no. you have been listening to the conditional release program with your host Jack the Insider and Joel Hill. You have Jack can be found on Twitter on at Jack the Insider and Joel on at Crunchy Moses with AK. Set up a Facebook page, you can find fairly easily. Just search the fucking name of the podcast. No one else has got our name. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it on social media or any other way. Do a leaflet drop. Print us out, you know, <laughs> make a QR code. Uh, Monica Smith likes those. Don't uh, do that. That's silly. No, do it. <laughs> no, don't. Please don't do that. We, we do have a Patreon, as we said, at the front of the program to help keep this sustainable. It's bloody time-consuming and we still have to pay rent. Help keep the lights on. Yes, please. For as little as $5 a month, you'll have access to all sorts bonus content. You know all this. You've heard it all before. This includes a weekly premium episode. And those premium episodes are actually quite good. Um, it's kind of worth the money. We like doing them. And I yeah. think people won't listen to them. And yeah, we talk some shit. It's good. And finally, all feedback, tips, and death threats should be sent to the conditional release program at gmail.com. We would love to hear from him, even if it's to tell us you plan to start a podcast about our inevitable trial at Nuremberg 2.0. Ha, jokes on you, dickhead. There won't be a trial. No, You're just going to get hanged in the morning. Be, yeah, just in a in a big school gymnasium. Oh well, it was nice while it lasted. Thanks, listeners. See you next time. Thanks. See ya. See ya. I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. Fuck me, you guys are bastards. <laughs>